Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, like many of you, I'm feeling the tractor beam of normal life pull me back into the world. It's quite a feeling to have civilization reboot on the wings of a uh, successful vaccine campaign. Pretty amazing. One thing the United States appears to have gotten right is the last-minute vaccination of a society that couldn't even agree we had a pandemic. What an incredible situation we've been in. I can imagine many of you share my sense that whatever was good in uh, the Great Reset of the last year should be maintained. A sense of greater clarity with respect to one's priorities. But it's worth observing that it will be hard to maintain without some ongoing attention. Anyway, I wish you all the best of luck as things uh, return to normal here. And we find ourselves eating inside restaurants once again. No real housekeeping. Just a reminder about the new podcast with Ricky Gervais that is available over at absolutelymental.com. There are 11 episodes on various topics, three of which you heard on this podcast some months back. The titles are Why Do We Dream? What Makes Something Funny? Will We Be Replaced by Robots? Would You Rather? What's the Point? Where Does Morality Come From? What Makes Us Who We Are? Why Do We Fear Death? How Can Stories Make Us Cry? What's So Great About Life? And how will civilization end? These are episodes organized around questions that Ricky poses to me, and I endeavor to answer them, but then chaos ordinarily ensues. Anyway, it was a lot of fun to make. People really seem to love it, so it is there if you want to hear it at absolutelymental.com. Today I'm speaking with Antonio Garcia Martinez. Antonio worked at Facebook and other companies in tech and was recently hired by Apple, uh, and then quickly fired over the discovery that he had written a best-selling book, which Apple already knew about. And um, there were some lines in there that 2,000 of his fellow employees at Apple thought uh, made them actually unsafe to (laughs) to, uh, work in his company. This is yet another cancellation coming from the identitarian moral panic that has engulfed the left side of our political spectrum. And uh, I wanted to talk to Antonio because this was really just such a clear-cut case of us having reached a precipice that we really must pull back from. This was a case where he had written a book which, as you'll hear, was widely vetted by liberal journalists and widely admired. And it was published in 2016, which, though it is only five years ago in calendar time, might as well have been in the Middle Ages with respect to current attitudes. Anyway, I know some of you are still struggling to convince yourselves that this is even a problem. I will admit that it's possible to be too online and to magnify this problem. And many of the people who are focused on it, I have criticized for becoming too myopic 
But I do think we've reached a point where there's a level of activism and capitulation to the mob that we just can't sustain and certainly shouldn't want to sustain. Politics has invaded everything, right? It's just crazy that we have to think about politics this much. This has become absolutely stifling to our intellectual lives. And if you were privy to some of the closed-door conversations I've had about this, you would be aghast at how paralyzed even the most powerful people in our society are at the moment. Politically speaking, this will be the ruination of the Democratic Party, which you might think deserves to be ruined, but what does it leave us? The Republican Party? And the pendulum will swing back and perhaps not land in the center. We don't want an overcorrection to this either. Anyway, I think this has all been taking us to a very ugly place, and it's time for all of us to find something like a true north where real ethical coherence can underpin our politics, and politics can recede to the edges of life and culture where it belongs. Anyway, I feel like I have to pick my moments on this topic, but the instantaneous capitulation of the richest company on earth, Apple, just needed to be talked about. And now I bring you Antonio Garcia Martinez. I am here with Antonio Garcia Martinez. Antonio, thanks for joining me. Hey, Sam. Thank you for having me on. So, um, this is an interesting topical moment. It's interesting for me, but I'm sure painful and chaotic for you. But um, before we jump into the, the matter at hand, maybe you can summarize your background. What, what is your potted uh, intellectual and tech biography? Yeah, it's, uh, it's slightly strange. So I guess it all started when I read uh, Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker when I was working on a PhD in physics at Berkeley. And um, it just convinced me that I had, believe it or not, that I had to go work on Wall Street. Mm. <laughs> and so I, uh, I dropped out and got a job at Goldman Sachs as a, um, a credit derivatives pricing quant, basically on the trading floor, um, right when the credit bubble was going to explode. And I saw that whole fire sort of play out. What, what, what year was that? I left Berkeley in 2005 mm -hmm. and left Goldman in 2008. Yeah. Okay. So you were there when the, uh, the, when the wheels fully came off. Oh, yeah. I had, I had front, you know, as a wet behind the ears, you know, Berkeley, former Berkeley grad student, I had a front row seat on the incineration of the American financial system, hmm. yes. <laughs> which formed a chapter in, in my later book, which we're going to get to. But anyhow, the, the financial world was blowing up. I, the, one good intuition I had in my life was that this whole finance thing was kind of going to, you know, be kind of over <laughs> for a number of years. And that tech would be sort of an oasis from the coming catastrophe, which it sort of was. And so I moved back west, actually, to the Bay Area, where I'd been a grad student and worked at a, at a big tech startup. That startup was run by a sociopath, didn't, didn't actually do very well, but I did meet co-founders and I got into what's called Y Combinator, which as many of your listeners probably know, it's, it, well, it was the original sort of tech incubator accelerator that yeah. takes you know, founders who don't know what they're doing and hopefully takes them to a point where they know slightly more about what they're doing. And uh, started a company, ran for about a year, sold it to Twitter, and through a bunch of drama, I ended up as an early member of Facebook's uh, ads team, specifically working on 
data and targeting and privacy around 2011. How big was Facebook at that point? Well, the company as a whole, I think I was like employee 2000. Mm -hmm. But given, given that the ads team started relatively late or that the entire ads product started rather late in Facebook's life, the entire ads team at the time in terms of engineers was maybe 25 or 30 at most with five or six what are called product managers, i.e. sort of you know, the product leader who kind of defines what, what gets built. And I was the one for targeting. So it was, it was super early days. There had never been a targeting roadmap of any sort at, at Apple. That was my mm. first mandate when I got there. So it was very, and, and you know, the cool thing about it and why I thought it sort of merited a book, which we're going to get to in a second, you know, was watching Facebook go from that sort of very embryonic, you know, almost slightly frat boyish culture to, you know, a proper public company. I was, I was there overlapping that, that, that period. The company went public when I was there. It forms kind of the, the crowning part of, of my memoir. So that, that was the sort of interesting part to it. And so when I, when I left Facebook for a bunch of reasons, which, I mean, we could talk about or not. Um, and then, you know, I, I held a few other roles. I was an advisor at Twitter. I was a, a VP of a product at a, at an advertising company, you know, it's it sort of, well, and then my mother died was a whole nother story, but it sort of struck me that, you know, I, not that my story was actually that unique, but it was emblematic of a certain time and period in Silicon Valley and that it was worth sort of recording in, in a book. And that's what I did. I, I basically sold everything, moved to Europe because I assume I'd be canceled <laughs> for, for writing the tell memoir. It turns out, I guess I was canceled, but for slightly different reasons and wrote a very unvarnished view of my history inside Silicon Valley called Chaos Monkeys, which unfortunately is still in the news, which is why mm -hmm. this conversation is happening. Yeah, so I, uh, I will confess I have not finished your book, but I, you know, we, we just grabbed this podcast uh, in terms of my workflow pretty much on the fly, and so I'm, I think I'm about halfway through, but certainly enough to get a sense of your point of view there and what kind of read it is. And We'll, we'll we'll get to that because you know the reception that the book got when it came out was um, I'm sure there were people who wrote some hit pieces, but there are an incredible number of effusive responses to the book as a um, an insider tell all of Silicon Valley, and uh, it's it's very well written. It's very entertaining. It's easy to see, however, how someone might not like you on the basis of reading it. I mean, it's like the persona you adopt is extremely catty and, I mean, and contemptuous. I mean, you're basically contemptuous of everyone, including yourself, at least for the first half of the book. I, mean, I don't know if there's some downpour of gratitude and generosity that, that I'm going to encounter at the end. But, you know, up until the midpoint, everyone, I think with the exception of Paul Graham at Y Combinator, gets um, fairly crucified by you. But I think I'm, we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So you've written this book, which is now poised to detonate like a time bomb in your life. What happens next? I hear Apple hired you for a job recently. Yeah, indeed they did. <laughs> well, I, I would pause maybe, and I think the launching of the book is, is maybe worth commenting on mm -hmm. for a moment. As you said, it, it was widely reviewed. I mean, I, I don't like tooting my own horn, but, you know, whether Apple knew or not is one of these questions. So I, I feel I, I feel <laughs> I need to cite the fact that it was like a month on the bestseller list of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. It was reviewed by everybody. It made a big splash. I announced it on like CBS uh, America this morning, whatever it's called, that show with Gail King. You know, it, it, it made a splash when it came out by, by any objective standard. And if you go to like the, you know, the Amazon page for it, 
you'll see this wall of positive blurbs mm. from every major, you know, elite reviewer, media organization in the country, you know, commenting on it and all the rest of it. So, I mean, this book was about as secret as, as, as Christmas Day, really. And I would just point out that this is relevant because you, some people will anticipate where we're going here. You have been fired over the, by Apple, over the discovery of this unhidden book for reasons that, that have everything to do with the, the, the identitarian moral panic that's occurring on the left here. But the thing to point out, it's not gratuitous to cite all these great reviews because they're coming from the highest echelons of liberal media a mere, what is it, four years ago, five years ago? When did this book come out? Yep, yeah. 2016. Yeah. So maybe it was an NPR best book of the year. You have multiple positive citations from the New York Times. Andrew Ross Sorkin is one of them. Yeah, it looks like you had independent, separate reviews in the in the weekly paper and in the book review. I mean, to call this effusive is to understate it from a publishing point of view. And these are liberal voices who, if anyone was going to discover that you were a right wing monster. It would have been discovered here. We got Leonard Lopate loving the book. We have you, know, you did an interview with Kara Swisher at the time, and while she pushed you on topics of related to sexism and misogyny, she completely got the context in which this was appearing. And I mean, as we'll get to, the context is everything. So it's um, deeply ironic that every liberal voice in sight seems to have not noticed the problem that, uh, and again, I'm, I'm getting ahead of the story here, but that 2,000 employees at, at Apple, based on, on their clairvoyance, one must imagine without having opened your book, read into the, the depths of your soul and realized that you needed to be canceled. Yeah. And, um, it, you know, it's funny, a female reader actually DM me yesterday. I won't, I won't name who it is, but I, I screenshotted her, her DM said, you know, I, I, I really think 99% of your detractors have never even read the book. Mm. Because, you know, again, 99% of the book has nothing to do with, you know, dating in San Francisco, any of that stuff. It really has to do about technology, entrepreneurship, and all the rest of it. And, and speaking of being right wing, Sam, you know, it's funny, because I, I went back and reread some of my passages. By the way, authors, I, I at least don't go back and reread Chaos Monkeys on a regular basis. I had to remind myself of a lot of the tone and stuff, because, you know, you just leave a book behind and, you know, get on with life. But I, I was rereading the chapters and I realized I come off like this radical Bernie bro, mm -hmm. <laughs> because my, my criticisms of, of the sort of pageant of capitalism involved, and for example, the IPO, which was a major event at Facebook. And I was right there in the courtyard, right in front of Zuck when he pushed the buzzer, you know, all that stuff, you know, front row seat on the whole thing. And, you know, I, I kind of objected to it. I, I saw the cult-like elements of it. I saw how at their extremes, hyper-capitalism and communism sort of meet. My, my parents are Cuban exiles. They, they fled the communist revolution. I, I've been back to Cuba, actually, reporting for Wired on the underground internet. So, you know, it's, it, but it's, and obviously there's differences there. I'm not saying, obviously, Facebook equals communist Cuba, but there's elements of the culture that are very similar in, in, in sort of disturbing ways. And so I, I actually do get into that a lot. But again, that's wholly and completely uncommented on. Most of the context, or sorry, most of the quote is about one sentence quoted out of context in which in a very, you know, ham-fisted in an awkward way, I make this sort of pee in to my, to the then mother of my child. And, you know, the, the pair, I don't think I need to repeat it, but, you know, there was a certain passage there that everyone's talking about. But again, the, you know, the other, the other 512 pages of the book are not about that. 
And so if, if there's one thing in particular that peeves me, it's, it's kind of that completely, you know, biased parsing of, of the book. Okay, so let's, let's start at the moment where you get recruited by Apple and what happens next. Right. So, I, you know, I was working at a large venture-backed startup before and uh, was fairly comfortable there. I had invested a lot of time and sweat there. Well, let me, let me just maybe fill in the gaps because mm. people might be wondering, like, what's the deal here? How do you go from a writer back to tech? I think it's relevant to, to the story. So, you know, after the book came out in 2016, you know, one of the things I didn't realize as an author, I'm, I'm sure, Sam, you know, you know this now more, <laughs> way more than, than I do, uh, you know, the author is part of the product that's sold with the book, right? And I, I didn't quite understand that. I, I thought I could sort of sell this book, you know, crazy gonzo journalist thing, and then kind of go on with life or whatever. I ended up staying in writing. I, I became a columnist at Wired. I, I, wrote, I wrote book reviews for the Washington Post. I, you know, I became your standard ambiguous media figure who spends too much time on Twitter and writes here and there and tries to make a spectacle of him or herself, right? And it drove me basically crazy. I literally went into a deep depression and we don't have to turn this into a sob story, but it just became untenable. Right around 2019, I understood that I just, I can't keep on doing this. Mm. And so I, I, I came back to tech, which to me, I didn't know. Again, like I had written, you know, I, there's this sort of code of silence that exists inside tech. Like you're not supposed to, everything's always up and to the right. Everything is positive. And no one ever talks about the reality of it, which is often a little bit darker than that. And I had. And so I thought I was canceled from the employment perspective about that alone. But it turns out I, I managed to, to wangle a job at a very respected, successful startup and spent a year and a half there. And I'm like, OK, I'm back in business. Like, I, I'm a tech guy again. I've left the writing world behind. It's a shame, but whatever. Right. So then, you know, Apple, through a former colleague who worked there, you know, reached out and said, look. We've got X, Y, and Z going on. We think you'd be a real fit here. Let's start talking. And yeah, it took a couple months, but basically they, yeah, they persuaded me to come in, interview. I spoke to a bunch of their team. It's how it works in tech. You do a, you know, a loop in which you sit there and talk to a half dozen people all day. And uh, they made an offer. And um, you know, people often ask me, and I, I'm guessing this is, I might be preempting your next question, Sam, which is like, well, did like Apple know about the book or what? And they absolutely did. I mean, when, when you apply to get back into the tech fold, right, like this, writer, this writerly period is almost like a gap in the resume you have to explain, mm -hmm. right? At least that's how I felt about it. And so I, I put it on my CV. It's on my LinkedIn. Practically every interviewer I brought up, so like, hey, I know it's kind of weird, but there was this like three-year gap where <laughs> I spent too much time on Twitter and wrote, and that's it. But I'm back in business. I'm a tech guy now. That's what it is. And so, they, of course, they knew about it. And then, in addition, you know, you provide professional references when you apply to tech companies. And, uh, you know, Apple actually checked them and did their due diligence and spoke to all of them. And I spoke to those references. And indeed, they, they asked specifically about the book and, you know, is Antonio actually this person? Can we trust him to, like, not divulge internal secrets? Like, wh what is he actually like as a person? And the answers were all, well, look, the book is one thing. The person is another. You're fine. We, we support him. We get behind him. I mean, some of my references were people at, at Facebook mm. that I'd actually written the book about. And so All Systems Go was hired. And then, of course, you know, what happened happened three weeks later. So you moved, right? You were, where were you? You were in Washington? Y yeah. So <laughs> one of the, among the various imprudent things I did <laughs> in 2016, in addition to publishing this book, I wrote the book in a part of the world called the San Juan Islands, which I, I didn't know about at all. And I, probably most Americans don't know about. It's about 130 islands northwest of Seattle, kind of 
practically in Canada. Hmm. That's part, part of the U.S. Gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful place. And uh, I randomly, quote unquote, discovered them. And when I got the book deal in 2015, they were like, oh, we want it by like next summer, which is lightning speed by book standards. And they're like, so can you get us a manuscript by like Christmas? And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. I've basically got to go, go to a cabin in the woods and live like a hermit and just pump out, you know, prose and that's it. And that's what I did. I rented a house on this island called Orcas Island on the northern shore of it. I, you know, drank a lot of IPA and wrote and fumed a lot, which I think maybe created part of the tone in the book hmm. that is still now an issue. And it, and it came out and I kind of fell in love with the place. And so then when the first advance check sort of hit, you know, which was nothing, ama- <laughs> nothing enormous, by the way, I, um, I bought a few acres of, of bare woodland up there and for the next two or three years became, you know, what you call a homesteader, taming, taming the wild, putting in a well, putting in a solar panel system, building structures. I mean, initially I literally had, like I, I showed up in September of 2016, three months after nonstop book publicity with a backpack and a tent and said, I will make this home. <laughs> and so that's, that's what I did from about 2016 until the end of 2019. Although I, I still live there, like I, particularly under the pandemic, I would bounce between San Francisco and there, hmm. but I, I stopped building and stopped, you know, <laughs> getting calluses on my hands towards the end of 2019. But then I sold that. So then when, when the Apple thing hit, like, again, I, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know quite how to stress it, but it was really me kind of turning over a new page in life and saying, look, the writer thing is definitely dead. I'm definitely going back to tech. Orcas Island, I mean, the idea was to be this, you know, eccentric bohemian, you know, isolated writer, that's not going to happen. I'm just going to join Apple and be, you know, a polite, loyal worker bee inside, inside them. And that's it. I'm just, and I've, I've got family in San Francisco, I've got a child that I have a relationship with. I'm just going to sell that. It's over. I mean, it was, it was a great saga. It was an adventure, but it's, it's time to, to just put that behind me. And literally, literally the day that the deal closed, like when the broker texted me saying, oh, great, the wire's going to hit, everything's great, we're all done, is when the current scandal actually erupted. Okay, so what was the first um, reverberation of the uh, scandal? How did it first land for you? Yeah, I mean, this is where we get a little bit into. <laughs> this is where we get a little bit into a legal minefield. I can't. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm still under current Apple NDA as mm-hmm. any employee is at, at a tech company, and so things that happened internally at Apple while I was there, I really can't address. But what I can say, and what I have said publicly is that it was a snap decision. It happened very quickly. And it, you know, it was from one moment to the next. And, and, that, and that's how it went down. The, the rest of it, I can't, I can't really comment on. But uh, as far as what's publicly available, it's true to say that your hire came to the attention of your fellow now Apple employees, and some petition was circulated. And uh, something like 2,000 Apple employees either called for an investigation or called for your firing or what happened there? Yeah. I mean, I'm really quoting from what's publicly reported. The Verge did right. a whole big piece on it on Wednesday. So I, yeah. you know, I'm, again, I'm not citing my experience. I'm really just quoting um, the public record. But yeah, apparently, according to that Verge reporting, yeah, there was a petition apparently circulated with a number of signatures that, again, cited and quoted some of the passages in the book, in my opinion, out of context, and um, made a lot of allegations there. And uh, apparently that's, that's what was behind my firing. Right. So, and then Apple released a statement about your firing, which at least to my eye gave some topspin to it, which I got to think is 
defamatory in some sense. I mean, they, you know, it's clear you're being fired for what they now deem to be the bad optics of your book written several years ago, but the language they used to describe this made it sound like, you know, you had done something untoward as an employee at Apple, right? Like you had, I should have the language here. I could get it, but it's, do you know what I'm referring to? I do. I very much do. Yeah. The language they used, the statement they issued on, I believe it was Wednesday evening, was a statement along the lines of, you know, I forget exactly, but hateful behavior. And the, the word behavior was definitely used because that's what stuck in my head. Right. Is not acceptable at Apple in the context of being asked about my situation. And I agree with you. I think, I think it is defamatory because I vigorously allege that, that it is categorically false to suggest that my firing was in any way related to my behavior or performance at Apple. It absolutely was not. I spent, you know, three and a half weeks on Zoom calls with engineers, you know, doing the job of an engineer, and that's it. And so, yes, I, I very much disagree with that statement from Apple. The big picture here is that, you know, you're now, you, you are sharing an experience with several people who could be named who have been, you know, fired or otherwise canceled based on things they have written previously. And in your case, it's especially strange because as we said, that's what, what you wrote, though you know, I, I can actually see the basis for someone thinking, all right, this isn't a guy I want to spend a lot of time with, given the, the angle you, you took there. It's pretty obviously a persona. But the crucial thing to realize is that all of the liberal intelligentsia of the time, you know, the, the distant epoch of five years ago, got a chance to process this. And this was just a, and it was almost universally accepted as a valuable insight into what's going on and what it's like to work in the inside of the tech juggernaut. And we're clearly at a moment where this attitude of intolerance to um, anything remotely edgy is, is clearly stifling self-expression in the present, and it will stifle it on a go-forward basis because everyone can draw the obvious lesson here. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that a writer like Philip Roth, you know, ha were he to still be alive, would be probably unpublishable now and, and even unhirable. I mean, it's just the distance between him as a person and the various protagonists, you know, awful protagonists he created, one can only speculate about what's the true worldview of Philip Roth, but it's easy to see that that kind of artistic expression, and granted, you're writing, you were writing nonfiction, but still, there's a, a shocking liability to anything but the most anodyne kind of expression now, and people will draw the obvious lesson. It's just, it's not worth paying the price if you have aspirations to do anything else other than be a, an artist who's going to be vilified by half of society. How do you think about this in terms of the effect this kind of thing is likely to have on just people finding their own voice in any kind of creative field? Yeah, no, I, I agree. It is very stifling. I mean, you know, it's funny, I was on, um, I was on with Kara Swisher and other reporters on uh, Twitter Spaces last night, and they actually had people up to ask me often very pointed and you know somewhat angry questions. And um, you know, one of the questioners asked me a question of like, how 
do you defend what you said? In other words, like, do you believe what you wrote in that book? And my answer was, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that's the right question to ask. I mean, I, I agreed with her in the sense that like if my book or that passage, for example, had been an op-ed column in a newspaper in which indeed I am saying Antonio Garcia Martinez believes that the world should be ordered this way, then I should be called to account for my beliefs and say, well, why do you want the world to look that way? Right. Mm. But what I was writing, a work of literary nonfiction, even though it's a memoir and even though in theory it's about real events, is not a claim, is not a claim to truth, right? It, it, nor is it a normative claim about how the world should be. I mean, it's far from that, right? I mean, the, the example that, that comes to mind is Les Philip Roth, but somebody like, say, Tom Wolfe's Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, which for those who aren't familiar, it's a classic work of what's now called sort of gonzo journalism, mm. in which the journalist kind of injects themselves in the narrative, and it's told in this very hyperbolic voice. I mean, it's clearly the sort of, the sort of tone I was going for. And, you know, it, was Tom Wolfe asked at the time, it, by the way, the topic of the story is sort of the summer of love and hanging around with Ken Kessie and some of the literary scene, a lot of drugs a lot of irresponsible behavior. You know, would someone have asked Tom Wolf at the time, well, do you, do you support drug use? I mean, maybe he would have. I mean, certainly, you know, latter-day Puritans and Victorians and sort of deep social conservatives probably did object to the book for those reasons. But certainly nobody in the cultural world would have said, well, Tom Wolf shouldn't have written in that tone. And he should have hedged every mention of every acid trip with a little like mini lecture on why drug use is bad. No one would have claimed that, right? Hmm. And, yet he, and yet somehow we've, we've lost that, right? There, there is no space between a descriptive and literary description, you know, a, a approach to something and the normative description. Like everyone has to be advocating for something all the time, and it must be of the utmost moral purity, right? That is the register in which almost everything is written now. And yes, I find it deeply stifling because, and I tweeted this, right? There have been ideologies in the past, among them communism and Nazism, that felt that all art must be in service to a political end, that art cannot exist for its own sake, to quote the sort of Oscar Wilde cliche. And I just don't believe that. I don't think, I don't think art should always serve a political purpose, mm. right? If, if anything, it should undermine the current politics, but reflexively. I think we should probably describe the passage because I don't know what ideas is, is forming in the minds of our listeners who, who haven't read about this story yet. But I think in context, it's easily understood to be the voice of a kind of persona. So do you want to read it or summarize it or you want me to find it? It's funny, I told the story of the passage in Kara's thing. It was one of these areas. So I had, a, I had an editor, it just, it just so happens, a female editor, and she improved the book in a huge way, and I thank her so much because the book was a mess. But this is one place where, for whatever reason, I put my foot down and said, no, no, come on, we have to continue it. And she actually wasn't against it necessarily. She just thought that the joke had sort of run too long mm -hmm. and that it was time to wrap it up. Because I, I had turned in 700 pages for what was supposed to be a 300-page beach read, and clearly it wasn't. So yeah, the context here, one of the subthreads, and again, this is one of these things you don't realize until you write a book, is that you can't just write a kind of wonky take on, look, this is how ad tech and venture you know, financing and IPOs work. Like that's not enough. If you want to cross into the mainstream, like that's not enough. You've got to inject some personal story into it. And so rightly or wrongly, and I think in retrospect, I, I regret it, I inject a lot of my personal life in it to kind of jazz it up. And I was literally, like my life, to be honest, is really not that interesting nor that edgy. So I was literally milking it for as much as I could. And one of the, one of the racy bits, I guess, is that indeed, I, I had a child with a woman I barely knew. We had just started dating. You know, she got pregnant. She was going to have it. And we actually made a go of it. We moved in together and we're like, at the time, I was completely in love. And you know, on we go. Like you kind of roll with it. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing all this risky startup stuff. And then on top of it, there's a kid. But I guess I was, my mindset was just in that mode of accepting all risk. 
And so this passage comes at the moment in which, you know, she says she's pregnant and I'm like mulling it over and I'm like, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm infatuated with this woman. We'll, we'll try to make a go of it. And, you know, I had just come off like everybody in their 20s and 30s living in some coastal city on the whole online dating thing, you know, for better or worse, right? And so the statement is one of these flips saying that we've all said, and if someone's going to claim to me they haven't made a statement of the form, you know, all men from bloody blah or bloody blah. Everyone has said that who's been on the online dating trip. I just, I wrote it in prose in a slightly, yeah, admittedly offensive way. Okay, I'll just start from like the top of that column of text. She had wild green eyes with unnatural red spots in her irises when you pulled close, reminiscent of that Afghan girl from the National Geographic cover. Her personality was flinty and rough and as leathery as her skin. She had spent years between various jobs backpacking around the rougher parts of the world. She was an imposing, broad-shouldered presence, six feet tall and bare feet and towering over me in heels. Most women in the Bay are soft and weak, cosseted and naive despite their claims of worldliness and generally full of shit. I mean, that's it, I guess. Oh, well, or, well, and so, yeah, that's basically it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it goes, it goes on and on. There's an, there's an entire passage here. I don't want to bore your listeners, but that's, that's basically it. But that's the, that's the thing that got you canceled or fired. So you're generalizing about most women in the Bay Area. And I mean, clearly, in this context, isn't the service of justifying your admiration for this one woman who's entirely different from the generalization. And, but again, the, the larger context is of a, a narrative voice that is just relentlessly taking down everything in sight, including yourself. Right. right? I mean, you, you're also an object of derision in the book. Yes. And I mean, there's a liability to all this. I mean, for a, for a journalist or a memoirist to emulate Tom Wolfe in, in Gonzo Mode or, or Hunter S. Thompson, I, I believe you've, you've mentioned that you were you had him in mind as an exemplar. It's probably a bad idea in the same way that emulating Nietzsche is a bad idea for a philosopher. I mean, it's not that these guys were geniuses and can't be emulated, although Nietzsche certainly was a certain type of genius. But it's just that much of their rule-breaking comes off as silly and self-aggrandizing by turns, right? It's just it's if someone's not going to like you on the basis of this book, if they're going to collapse you, the author, down to the persona you're presenting, it's that you seem too cynical and too willing to break trust with, with everything. But what you can't honestly read from a passage like this is that this is a, a careful statement about what you believe women are like anywhere. And the, the connection that people at Apple, I'm sure, were making, and I believe I've seen some statements to this effect since, is that this passage is of a piece with you know, claiming that women can't be you know, good tech entrepreneurs or good software engineers. or I mean, It's the misreading of the James Damore memo. I mean, that wasn't even what was in James Damore's memo when he was fired from Google. But that's how it got summarized for people as a, basically a a misogynistic statement about the limitations of women in tech. And I'll just point out a, a further irony here is that uh, one of your, your brief colleagues at Apple, who I'm sure is still at Apple, is uh, Dr. Dre, whose, whose rap lyrics on the topic of women are you know, quite a bit more pointed than anything in your book. And uh, he hasn't been canceled yet, 
I believe he's also trailing some credible allegations of violence against women. How has that played out in this aftermath? Yeah, as soon as this thing broke, so many people DM me with stuff about Dr. Dre. I'll, I'll admit I'm not a big rap, rap fan or Dr. Dre fan, so I had to go look it up. But I mean, his lyrics are hideous. Let's, let's just be clear. right? Mm. And um, as far as I understand, he's still currently employed at Apple. And indeed, I think, yeah, there was credible allegations of actual physical violence toward women when he was younger. So yeah, I, I agree there's an element of hypocrisy there. I, I would also stress, I think what you, what you first mentioned, right, that if there's a tone and derision in my writing or in this writing, that derision is almost universal. And in fact, the ultimate butt of all the jokes, the, the fool in Chaos Monkeys is me at the yeah. end of the day. Like, I, I, don't, I don't come off riding into the sunset winning in the end, right? Like the persona I created that you, you can feel free to think he's an asshole. Guess what? The asshole loses in the end, right? The, the, the moral justice of the, of the universe is restored at the end of the book. <laughs> That's what I think people aren't picking up. It's like, oh, he's this arrogant asshole. Yeah. The, the character makes a fool of himself and loses almost everything by the end. Again, but that would require actually reading the book, which I, I don't think many of my critics actually have. So where do you go from here? And I guess we could just open this conversation to any thoughts you have about what it's going to take to turn the tide in tech and media and, and culture generally. I mean, this is all, again, this is, you are... Um, a single thread now of a um, quickly unraveling tapestry of of what you know. It's, it's hard to know where to point the wayback machine, but it seems like we're we're devolving with respect to um, our ability to have a sane conversation about moral and political norms here, where I mean, everything is being politicized and people's outrage is always turned up to eleven. What's happening in your case, and what do you think is is and, and should happen in the culture more widely. I think you're right, Sam. I mean, my, my story is, is nothing. It's one little thread of a much bigger story. I mean, just yesterday, I, and I have to admit, I, I was absolutely lolling at this, right? Apple employees created a, apparently, again, I'm only going off what's publicly reported, created a, a petition or a movement or whatever around um, Apple making a statement about the situation in Israel and Palestine, and um, that they've once again gone public with their, with their plaints. And it's, it's not just even an Apple story, right? I mean, this is global. Hmm. I think as we all remember, in October of last year, Coinbase took a very strong stand and said, look, we're just not talking politics at work. Here's a severance agreement. If you don't like it, we're going to move on. And that's the end of the story, for which they caught a lot of flack. But they managed to survive it. More recently, a company called Basecamp, whose celebrity founders have been way more vocal in their politics, tried to do the same. And they had a substantially larger fraction of their workforce uh, head for the doors, tweeting all the way. And so I think there is, and then just to another thing, just yesterday, there's another scandal in Daily Beast about what's going on in the New York Times style section, in which apparently there was a lot of infighting and smack being talked on internal Slack channels, right? So I think this, again, <laughs> this is bigger than, certainly bigger than Antonio, bigger than even Apple. I think in corporate America, you have a younger workforce that feels that they can bring, quote unquote, their whole self to work, which includes their, you know, political agenda or their political tastes and express those at work and have the corporate sphere pulled into the political sphere. And I think that's a, that's a major challenge. And it's fueled with all the same machinery that makes Twitter such an unpleasant place to be sometimes. You, you, we're replicating the exact same thing. It's called Slack and it masquerades as work, but it's, mm -hmm. it's the exact same dynamic. And I don't know, I, I really don't know what the out is other than potentially taking a hard line like Coinbase 
did. And, you know, as our grandmothers told us, like, don't talk religion or politics in, in polite company. It's going to have to be that. Or I think limping from one crisis to another, as the New York Times and Google are doing now. Literally every other week, there's another Slack-driven internal drama that sees the light of day and causes management to scramble. So I, I just, mm. I think there's a fork in the road. Well, at this point, it, it seems like nothing short of significant lawsuits will provide a, a, a countervailing force here. Because when you, when you take the point of view of any CEO of a, uh, of a tech company or a media business, and you're, you're having to contemplate a mutiny on the part of a, on a significant part of your workforce over issues like this, it seems that they, they want to avoid these kinds of controversies at all costs because there isn't a, a countervailing cost. But you know, the moment, they're, the moment a, a university or a newspaper or a tech company gets successfully sued with significant damages, and I don't know if I don't know what the what specific legal lever can be pulled there to make it truly actionable. I mean, I don't know if it's a a hostile workplace lawsuit or defamation or reverse discrimination in, in certain cases, depending on on what the actual story is. I mean, there are slightly different cases I'm thinking of, but something that delivers a a real you know, quantifiable penalty uh, where it's just too costly to be the kind of school or newspaper or tech company that will put up with this. And uh, I don't know if, I mean, do you see that tide turning? Well, on, you know, I, I would have somewhat less faith on the legal front just because most of the states where this is playing out are at-will employment sort of places. And mm -hmm. also, if you're, talking, if you're talking about companies like Google and Apple, money means nothing to them, right? Mm -hmm. strictly speaking. What they care about is the judgment in the court of public opinion. That, that to them actually does matter for a bunch of reasons. You know, every company in tech has outside regulatory scrutiny. They all need to appeal to their consumers, et cetera. I mean, one thing that I found extraordinarily encouraging in my case, when this all blew up, I'm like, that's it. I'm, you know, it, this is, I'm dead, I'm canceled. But in fact, there's been this influx of support. I've gotten thousands of DMs and emails from people saying, like, we support you. Maybe I don't agree with the book. Maybe the book was a little whatever, but this is just ridiculous what they've done to you. And so I, I think the public vibe, and I might be biased, obviously, because I'm in the middle of it and trying to find signs of, trying to find signs of encouragement. But I, I don't think that like, the public is sort of on the company's side in, in a lot of these cases. And I think your sort of median American doesn't understand this notion that you know, employees can sort of revolt and a, and a minority of them. Like, people keep on citing like 2,000 people signed a position. The petition, supposedly, according to according to Verge, well, you know what, 148,000 employees did not. <laughs> as, right. as far as I, if, the, right. if those numbers are correct, if those numbers are correct, I have no idea. But if those numbers are correct, the vast majority of the company did did not actually. So, it, you know, it yeah, it's it's a case in which the you know the noisiest get the most attention. But I, I don't know that it actually properly represents median belief. And at some point, that that does matter. Yeah. Well, so. I mean, the problem for Apple, if, first of all, I share your view of public opinion, although we could be in a, a similar echo chamber. I, I don't think I know anyone who doesn't think that Apple looks ridiculous here and, and, and worse, uh, hypocritical. I mean, you know, the, there's the comparison to Dr. Dre, which, which is um, inconvenient, but it's just look at the other ways in which they are failing to live up to norms that they should live up to. and should be you know, legally enforceable in the end. I mean, this is, a, this is the 
most valuable company on earth, I believe, or is it, is it one or two? It's, it's got to be. I think it's two trillion. Yeah. It, yeah. But I mean, is, is it the most valuable company on earth or is I it? I think so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, it, you know, it's being run out of a P.O. box in, in Ireland, right? I mean, it's not paying taxes in the U.S. because it's gaming our, our system internationally. That is an execrable attitude to take toward the public good. That's the kind of thing that should get more than 2,000 people to sign a, a, an internal petition over there. And next in line is, is how they behave with respect to China and their capitulations there and the human rights abuses that you know, their supply chain is very likely culpable for. I mean, you know, it is, in fact, crazy and, and obnoxious for the employees at Apple to seize upon a random culture war issue and demand that Apple take a position on it. So, you know, to side with the, the Palestinians, say, and, and want to jump into that, that, that doesn't make any sense. But in terms of policies for which Apple is directly culpable in, in human suffering that is on the other end of those policies, like, you know, what they do in China, that's relevant for Apple employees to care about. But, I mean, it's just, if, you know, Apple's the, the richest company in the world, if it can't have the moral courage to put its house in order when it's sitting on, you know, whatever, I got to think at least a hundred billion dollars in cash. If that's not enough to give you moral courage and clarity, when is it going to arrive? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I've literally not encountered anyone making any sense who saw the situation from another side. And yeah, it's just a yet another sign of the times. But I just don't see the mechanism that's going to allow us to course correct quickly. I don't know what is going to make this seem as it, to, to everyone all at once as unseemly as it in fact is. And what we, short of that, we have a massive coordination problem. We have, you know, when you, when you look at the experience of any individual, it becomes totally rational for a person to self-censor, to play it safe, to pretend to believe things they don't believe, to pay lip service to bizarre and dishonest virtue signaling just to hide from the attention of um, the inquisitors among us. We're living through a period of massive preference falsification where people's silence is being interpreted as assent to the bullying and hysteria of the fringe. And uh, that's, that's how these, all of our institutions are being captured. That's right. I mean, it's, it's Vaclav Havel's greengrocer all over again. Like yeah. He hangs the sort of appropriate sign on his window just for the sake of going along, even though his life is otherwise, and he understands that to some degree it's a sham. But um, I mean, the, the, the sad thing, and not to sound too pessimistic, is that those moral hypocrisies and that preference falsification can last for a, for a very long time, right? Again, look at communism. Look at you know the country my parents fled, Cuba. Right, it's it's still under this authoritarian regime in which everyone has to lie about everything all the time. Every, people live there in a network of lies. Not not to say that anything here is comparable to that, but I'm just saying that you can live in such a state of moral hypocrisy for a very long time that there's nothing forcing it. Even though you know the contradictions at some point become overwhelming, the human ability of to, to sort of indulge cognitive dis dissonance is almost limitless. And so mm. I, I don't see an obvious out from it, unfortunately. Well, what's the role of the difference between a, a publicly traded and a private company 
playing here? Because I feel like once people are running public companies, they feel vulnerable to public opinion in a way that I would imagine most people running private companies don't or don't to, to the same degree. Because I just, I mean, you and I know, we both know some very powerful people in tech in common who agree with us about everything we've said here, but who will, who in certain cases will not say any of this publicly because they, they just see no upside to it and all downside. They don't think it'll do any good. And they feel that too many people depend on them for their livelihood, that it's just, you know, rocking the boat is, um, just an exercise in pure masochism, and yet that's part of the problem. If the 5,000 people who agree with us, you know, the 5,000 most influential people who agree with us, who are too scared to say anything, would all just step into the, the light together, this problem would evaporate. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. Yeah, I've, I've, <laughs> I've had similar statements made in sort of what's become the confessional booth of Silicon Valley, which is private signal groups, mm -hmm. where, yeah, people say, look, I, I agree with you. But I mean, one of the weird contradictions, and obviously I'm not in this rarefied height of the world, but I have friends who are, you know, once you become wealthy and powerful and say you're a venture capitalist, right, you have, you know, hundreds of companies, employees and dependents that sort of depend on you and your stature, right? So in many ways, you're actually more handcuffed around what you can say than when you're just some rando who doesn't have a lot of economic power. Right. And so, yeah, they feel constrained that in some sense, whatever they were to say would negatively impact the companies and people, and employees they care about. And so they can't. But it's, it's a weird collective action pro, you know, problem, mm. although to be sli slightly less clinical about it. I mean, to be honest, it's a collective lack of moral courage, <laughs> I think is really what it yeah. is. Yeah. I, I said this on a podcast that I just released today with Jesse Single, but I'll, I'll just uh, reprise it here because it, it's relevant. I, I mean, it was just today. A dinner that had a bunch of you know very connected, powerful people at it, and this topic came up. And I did, you know, I, I floated this idea and, and you know pressed it as far as it would go for this conversation. I just said, you know, that at this moment there there is no substitute for institutional courage. And you CEOs and VCs and you know people who are are saying all of these things in private need to say them in public and. You need to hold the line against your crazy employees. And if all of the major companies did it, these um, super woke software engineers would realize, okay, there's, there's no place else to go, really. It's now they would have real skin in the game. Now there would be some cost to them to decide that everything was a five-alarm fire politically all the time because no one will want to work with them anymore. And, you know, you can't bounce from... Google to Facebook to Amazon to Apple, if all of the CEOs of those corporations are on the same page saying that they're not going to tolerate a moral panic anymore uh, and allegations of racism that are obviously spurious, uh, for instance. But this one this just went over like a lead balloon in this conversation. You know, everyone to a man and woman, and these are people who are either running some of the biggest companies or recently ran some of the biggest companies. These are people who sit on the boards of, you know, major uh, media properties and institutions. You know, to a man and woman, they all said, yeah, that's not going to happen. This is a quixotic exercise in free association for you, Sam, but this is just, no one is going to do this. And 
I just I, I was amazed at how emphatic they were. I mean, they could they they're very very likely are right. I mean, they could be wrong. There are some examples, as you pointed out. There's there was Base Camp, although perhaps it's, it's instructive that Base Camp lost thirty percent of its workforce. But there's a, perhaps the the happier example of Coinbase. But there are a few companies that have held the line here. But I was amazed at how reconciled these people were to their pessimism that this is, you know, that the help is not going to come from the top. Yeah, no, I've, I've had probably not quite as illustrious co- as a company as you, but I've had similar conversations with such people. And um, it always strikes me as odd that, you know, these are, you know, these are very enabled people with agency who feel they can, you know, land rockets on Mars mm-hmm. or invent this radical new technology. But when it comes to shifting the conversation a little bit through things that they can themselves do, it's total defeatism that you encounter. And I, I too find it kind of shocking. You know, I, I think, I, I mean, I think they're right in the sense that I don't think there's going to be some sort of collective revolt from the top 5,000 tech companies or anything. But I, I do feel that there's going to be, uh, I do think that companies are going to start triaging themselves. And I hate to use the word woke because it kind of casts you as one of these right wing woke crusaders. So whatever you want to call it, you know, activism in the workplace or whatever, right? I think there's going to be companies that kind of go along with it and just limp from crisis to crisis. And that's just the way they do business. And then those who actively say no, who go the Coinbase route. And I think you will see, it won't be the majority, but it'll be a non-trivial nucleus of companies that go that way who, you know, I mean, you can already see a few examples, Coinbase, um, Palmer Lucky's Anduril, you could cite other examples of companies that just say, look, we're not going to play in that political game. You, you're not bringing the whole self to work. <laughs> you, you simply mm-hmm. are not. And, um, I, you know, I think those companies will exist. And so long as there's at least a couple of them, I mean, someone needs to hire me, Sam, after all this, I have to get a tech job somewhere. So as long as there's a few of those companies, I mean, I I don't think all hope is lost. Well, thank you for um, telling your story. And so far as you were legally allowed to here, and, um, I wish you the best of luck you to find in the next, next gig. I, I do think it will be, um, you should be a prize hire for some intrepid company that actually wants to Put its behavior where its uh, heretofore privately expressed convictions are. I, I hope so. I mean, to be honest, though, um, and just as a super minor plug, in, in the near term, I think I'm actually going back to writing for now. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually announced yesterday on the car thing, I'm actually relaunching the Substack in a serious way. Substack has, has offered to help me out to get it going. And so it's kind of this weird thing. It's kind of like the old bank heist movie where like the old bank thief is like pulled in for one more job or right. whatever at the end, right, even right. though he doesn't want to. So it's exactly that. So circumstances have basically made it such that I've been pulled in for one last job. Mm. Um, and so I will be doing more writing going forward. But, you know, longer term, who knows? I still, I still side with the makers and the builders and the doers, I think, in the world. And so at some point, I'll be back on that side of the, uh, of the divide, hopefully. Well, I wish you luck. Does the uh, Substack uh, have a, a URL yet? It's the pull request. Pull request is like a code commit in uh, in open source software, mm. and so th- this is sort of like a literary code commit. So yeah, pull, you know, the pull or just go to my Twitter and link from there. Antonio at Antonio GM. It's pretty easy to find, and I'll be kicking it off. I might want to take a week off after all this, but I'll probably be kicking off in a couple weeks and full time, two or three posts a week. You know, the whole the whole deal. Okay. Well, thank you, Antonio. Best of luck to you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me.